Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today, we are talking about climate law. And I probably don't have to explain how relevant this subject is. Last year, 2020 was tied for the hottest year on record, matching the data only for the other two hottest years, the year before, 2019, and only a couple before that in 2016. But today we'll be discussing the role of law in addressing the problem, where it can make an impact, and what changes we can expect in the Biden administration. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by a leading expert on climate law, Professor Michael Girard of Columbia Law School and the director of the Sabin Center for Climate Law. Professor Girard, welcome to Talks on Law. My pleasure to be with you, Joel. It's our pleasure. And I suppose that Zooming remotely has at least an additional benefit of lowering our carbon footprint today. Thank goodness for small benefits. Professor, I mentioned in my introduction that the last few years have been hot, hot, and more hot. But perhaps you can share a little bit more about the actual data. What's going on in terms of climate change? Carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere continue to go up. Uh, They will still continue to go up further until we reach net zero emissions. And the more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the warmer the world is going to get. It's just a matter of physics. So the world has been getting warmer and warmer for more than a century. It jumps up and down from year to year, but the annual trend is unmistakable. And the six warmest years in recorded history are the past six years. Uh, There's no question that the planet is warming. So when you say net zero, you're already weighing in carbon sinks and impacts of things like forests or or the ocean. That's right. A total amount of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere, you add up what's going into the atmosphere and you subtract what's coming out of it through sinks. Oceans or forests, or if we someday develop artificial means to to withdraw uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But until it gets to net zero, the planet is going to keep on getting warmer. And where are we now in terms of the numbers on carbon production? Are we also at peak levels or have we begun to turn the corner and, and move down? Well, they were at near highs until the start of the pandemic. The pandemic has driven down uh, greenhouse gases a few percentage points, but that is just uh, a temporary perturbation so far as we know. And so once the world has recovered economically from the pandemic, it's expected to keep on going up unless we have a very green recovery, unless our recovery is oriented toward clean energy. And the early signs of that are not very favorable. Clearly, a big part of the equation, Professor, is technology. How do we make cleaner energy? How do we make cleaner energy cheaper? So if technology is the solution, what role does law, state or federal, play? Well, law plays an enormous role in terms of what technologies are permissible, plays a very important role in driving new technologies, especially for vehicles, for energy storage, for renewables, for carbon dioxide removal and sequestration, for all of the different kinds of technologies we need in order to solve the climate problem, uh, we need uh, 
legal incentives to help push them along, or we need mechanisms of some sort to give business the incentive to move forward with uh, these kinds of technologies. Ideally, we would also have government support for R&D and other uh, kinds of support so that this can really move forward. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those state incentive programs and rules. But first, why don't we look at the global framework? There are a couple of main treaties that we should know about. What are those? So in 1992, the world community came together and formed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which uh, set forth the objective of preventing anthropogenic interference with the climate system. But it didn't say how to do that. That was left to the Kyoto Protocol in 2007. And under the Kyoto Protocol, the developed countries uh, were obligated to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but it wasn't enforceable. The U.S. never signed on because the agreement did not impose any reduction obligations on the rapidly developing countries led by China and India. Everybody knew that the Kyoto Protocol wasn't working, and so in 2015, a new decision was reached in Paris under which countries undertook voluntary non-binding, unenforceable pledges to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. The Paris Agreement also said that we should prevent uh, global temperatures from going as high as 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial conditions and trying to keep it to just 1.5 degrees. But the pledges that the countries of the world came up with after Paris did not add up to nearly enough to stay within the temperature targets. And uh, just out of curiosity, were you involved in any way in the drafting or the, the crafting of the Paris Agreement? Yeah, I was in Paris for the negotiations and I was working with the delegation of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, which is one of the most threatened uh, countries in the world because of sea level rise. That's right. The Marshall Islands are extremely low in terms of elevation. I believe the average elevation is, is less than 10 feet. Uh, right. There are entirely atolls and the highest uh, level is about two meters. Uh, so they're already getting a lot of flooding and it's going to get a whole lot worse. Uh, in time, eventually, uh, we're afraid that the, they'll be completely uninhabitable because of sea level rise. So the Paris Agreement, if it's all voluntary, what's the main function of the agreement? Is these voluntary commitments, which are called nationally determined contributions, NDCs, that each country puts forward as its pledge. And then the idea is that every five years, countries will come back with stronger pledges called increased ambition. And so that's supposed to be a cycle every every five years. The Paris Agreement also has provisions for market-based mechanisms for voluntary trading among countries. It has the temperature commitment that I mentioned. It also calls on the wealthier countries to contribute uh, money to the uh, least developed countries to help them adapt to to cope with climate change. So these are all voluntary targets, uh, if you will. Is this like in in a country club, uh, as a metaphor, if someone gets a new car, then maybe other members who have old cars will see it and want to get a new car as well so they can show off? Well, I'm not sure I'd use a country club analogy, but naming and shaming is certainly certainly part of it, uh, that each country not only has to announce its pledge, but also has to um, every year uh, show 
what it's doing and indicate what its emissions have actually been. And so the theory was that countries would be too embarrassed by reporting that they're not meeting up to their pledges or that their pledges are too weak. And that will drive them to be both more ambitious in their pledges and more stringent in actually what they do. That hasn't really worked out, but that was the theory. Talking about embarrassing, I imagine for the officials of the Obama administration who worked on crafting the Paris Agreement when the United States actually was the first, the only country to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Oh, embarrassment doesn't begin to cover it. You know, when Trump came in and he announced that he was going to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, the people who were involved in the negotiations, and I would say everyone involved in fighting climate change was completely aghast. It it was horrible that the Trump administration pulled out. And the justification for pulling out was that even though it was a voluntary agreement, there just weren't enough requirements for countries like China. Was that the argument? That was sort of the most important part of it. It was the, the idea was that it put the U.S. at an economic disadvantage, that the U.S. had to do a whole lot to reduce its emissions, whereas China wouldn't have to do anything for 30 years, and therefore uh, it, it would devastate the U.S. economy. Now, all of that was nonsense, uh, but that was the argument that Trump put forward. And it was the same argument that George W. Bush used in 2001 when he came in and uh, repudiated the Kyoto Protocol. And it was the same argument that the U.S. Senate used back in uh, 1997 for saying they wouldn't sign on to anything like the Kyoto Protocol in the first place. The announced reason is always that it gives too much of an advantage to China and India. But again, these are voluntary agreements and have no enforcement mechanism for the countries that fail to meet the targets. That's right. The other thing I should say about Trump is that unlike George W. Bush, Trump was denying that climate change is really happening or that it's a problem. And so that was a further reason why he said that he didn't think the U.S. should commit to do anything about it. Interestingly, though, Professor, as President Trump removed the United States from the Paris Accord, a number of states attempted to sign on or or at least sign up to the obligations of the Paris Agreement. So in the first place, state action has been going on a long time. In the uh, 2000s, under the George W. Bush administration, several states led by California adopted their own uh, climate laws. But then after, after Trump pulled the U.S. out of Paris, there was more of that. There was something called the We Are Still In Coalition of numerous states and then a number of cities and private corporations signed on to say that even though Trump has pulled the federal government out of Paris, we still want to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So it led to a lot of, of state and local and private activity. So if all this is voluntary, uh, is, it, is it particularly law-related? Well, so several states adopted laws um, that um, were enforceable. So the most important of that is is New York in 2019 adopted a very strong law called the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, uh, which is a binding law that is going to require very significant reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from New York State. California has strengthened its laws, and there are a number of other states that have adopted laws that are binding within that state. How about preemption? Are there, are there any preemption issues there? Do federal laws preclude states from being creative in that way? 
the Clean Air Act, which is the principal law here, explicitly says there is not preemption, that states may go beyond the federal requirements that, with one major exception. The major exception concerns uh, motor vehicle standards. And for that, the uh, EPA has the exclusive ability to set emission standards. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has the exclusive ability to set fuel economy standards. But there was a carve-out for California that uh, California could adopt its own emission standards if it received a waiver from EPA. Uh, And if California received that EPA waiver, other states could uh, adopt the California uh, standard. So that's the the one big exception to the non-preemption provision. And California was able to get that special treatment because it already had its own emission standards. That's right. When the Clean Air Act was first passed in 1970, um, you know, California, particularly Los Angeles, had a horrible smog problem. It was already regulating uh, emissions, and part of the deal was they wanted to continue to be able to do that. So for many years, EPA has routinely given California the waiver to adopt its own emission standards, but Trump stopped that. He revoked the California waiver, said California couldn't do that. Uh, that's currently in litigation. And this issue is is mooted or likely to be mooted by the current administration. Uh, yeah, I, I'm quite certain that one of the things the Biden administration will do is change all of that. They'll undo Trump's weakening of the federal emission standards and adopt their own stronger standards going forward. And they uh, may well work with the state of California to combine the federal standards and the California standards for the next several years, which is what the Obama administration did back in 2010. So we saw that in response to the Paris Agreement, a number of states stepped up to the obligation even after the nation had, had backed out. What other creative or innovative ways have you seen states respond to climate change? Well, 29 states plus D.C. have adopted what are called renewable portfolio standards, which are legal requirements that the electric utilities that sell power in the state obtain a certain percentage of their electricity from clean sources. And so these renewable portfolio standards have been one of the most important actions to require the that have led to the construction of a lot more wind and solar. They have really accomplished a lot to clean up the grid. Professor, what's the normal range they're looking for? Is it 5%, 10% higher? Initially, some of them were fairly low, like 5 or 10%. Some of them were going up to 30 or 40%. But now, in, just in the last couple of years, several states have adopted 100% requirements. So these RPSs, these Renewable Portfolio Standards, or similar laws, are getting dramatically stronger in a number of states. So do we have any states right now that are actually pulling 100% of their power from renewables or have a short-term plan to, to do so? Uh, We don't have any that are there yet, but New York and California and Hawaii all have standards to move in that direction. A few other states have also adopted similar standards. But in order to achieve that, you have to build a whole lot of new wind and solar and hydro, if if you have that, or geothermal. And you have to shut down all your coal-fired power plants, and eventually you'll have to shut down all of your natural gas plants. So it's not the kind of thing that can be done overnight. One thing we haven't mentioned so far is nuclear energy. Where do you put that, Professor, in terms of 
clean energy, renewable energy? Uh, so I would divide nuclear into three categories. First is the existing nuclear power plants we have running now. Uh, the second is the idea of building new nuclear power plants with sort of the current technology. The third is coming up with uh, very different nuclear technologies. So I think that the nuclear plants we have operating now, there are about 98 of them, ought to continue in operation uh, as long as it can be done safely because they are a major source of zero emission or very low emissions power. In the second category, nobody's going to build any new nuclear power plants in the U.S. because it's the surest way for a company to go bankrupt. Uh, the costs are, are just astronomical. There are two plants that are going up now in Georgia, but that'll be it. And maybe you can explain a little, why is it so cost prohibitive to build a nuclear plant these days? What we've seen is every time there is an accident at a nuclear power plant or a near accident, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission tells the company building the plant to change the design so this kind of accident doesn't happen again. And that's extremely expensive when you're in the middle of building a plant and then you have to redo it. That's happened over and over again. And so uh, several of these power plants, when they were first proposed, people thought it would cost about a billion dollars and they end up costing maybe $10 billion. Uh, Westinghouse uh, was building uh, two that uh, became so expensive they went bankrupt. Several electric utilities have gone bankrupt. Uh, it has just become impossible to finance the construction of a new nuclear power plant uh, without very, very heavy subsidies. So the two nuclear power stations that are currently being built may be the last for the United States in the foreseeable future? That's right. There were two others that were being built that were that were abandoned. There, there's a lot of R&D going on into developing new kind of nuclear technologies. Some are called small modular nuclear reactors, and there's some other technologies, thorium and various others. But they're at least several years away from commercial application. Uh, if, if it ever happens and if they're really safe, that would be great, but we can't count on it. And how about you, Professor? Do you consider nuclear to be in the renewable category, since the, the fuel used has no real carbon footprint? Well, they're, they're considered zero emissions. They're, they're not renewable. Um, and for instance, New York State has adopted a law that by 2030, 70% of the electricity has to be renewable. And by 2040, 100% of it has to be clean. So That'll include nuclear to the extent there's any left. But nuclear is considered to be non-emitting. There, there are some emissions in the fuel cycle. So it's not zero, zero, but it's a whole lot less than burning fossil fuels. So that's one of the ways that states are, are fighting climate change. Are there other significant ways that states are or can turn the needle? States also have control over the electric generation plants within the state. Those are state regulated, not federal regulated. And so a number of states have been shutting down their coal-fired power plants. And uh, very importantly, a number of states are taking very active measures to build more renewables, especially wind and solar. And what we ultimately need is a huge amount of new renewables. And so far, that's mostly up to the states to build that. That may change under Biden, but so far, that's mostly been a state responsibility. Professor, given that we're doing today's interview remotely, largely in response to the COVID-19 pandemic across the nation, we should talk about COVID-19. The economic slowdown or changes that have resulted, how has that impacted climate change or the efforts to combat it? 
Well, it looks like uh, greenhouse gas emissions globally in 2020 were about 10% below what they would have been without the pandemic. You've obviously seen a, a dramatic reduction in air traffic, in uh, in vehicular traffic, in industrial activity. It, it is the worst possible way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You know, nobody wanted it to happen that way. And uh, the history has been that the only prior times when there's been a global reduction in greenhouse gas emissions was at a time of global economic crisis. That happened in the early 70s with the Arab oil embargo. It happened in the late 80s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it happened with the global financial crisis of 2008-2009. In each case, emissions then resumed and kept on going up. Uh, so the the history so far is these downturns are all temporary. And in those cases, emissions were going down because people couldn't afford to burn as much fossil fuels. Well, there yeah, there was a downturn in economic activity. Economic activity is directly related to greenhouse gas emissions. So under COVID, there's been a downturn in economic activity. So you have the same kind of uh, effect. You mentioned that these are usually temporary drops. Are there any countries that are taking a long-term approach and trying to you know, build the dip, I suppose, into their climate strategy? We're not seeing a lot of that yet. Now, Joe Biden, during his presidential campaign, said he wanted to do that. He talked about a green recovery. So if, if he's actually able to implement that with help from Congress, then the U.S. could be a global leader in a green recovery. But so far, we haven't really seen it. All right. So for those of you who are listening for MCLE credit, the code for today's course is 637940. So pause here or rewind. The code is 637940. Back to the interview. I worry, Professor, that with countries struggling economically, so many of their citizens lacking basics or or feeling the, the crunch that there may be an increased focus on the economy with environmental issues taking a backseat. Well, no, but it's not the case that the bottom line is necessarily hurt by going in an environmentally sound way. Building and operating wind and solar and so forth are major job creation opportunities. So a country absolutely could engage in a stringent program and a vigorous program of economic recovery and do it with clean technologies. Let's turn to the Biden administration. We have a new president. This president has made very clear that not only does he believe in climate change, but that it's a priority. There's already been a number of changes. Maybe you can give a little overview on what we can expect in the next four years Uh, So in the first place, the Biden administration is moving as quickly as it possibly can to undo the rollbacks uh, during the Trump administration. Uh, Donald Trump was to climate regulation as General Sherman was to Georgia. He did everything he could to demolish uh, these regulations. So Biden is putting them back and uh, then he's going to move further. He's putting back the strong motor vehicle standards that have been adopted by Obama, and he's going to make them stronger. He's going to put in new controls on air pollution from power plants to reduce the use of coal and eventually natural gas to generate electricity. And can all these be done through executive order, or does the Congress have to be involved? 
Uh, some of it can be done through executive order, just through the stroke of a pen. Some of it has to go through a more elaborate uh, process under the Administrative Procedure Act, which takes a few months or maybe a year or two. Uh, so some of that he'll do that way. But there are many things he can do without Congress. With Congress, he could do a whole lot more. He'll only have a you know bare majority in the Senate and uh, with Vice President Harris you know, breaking the tie. But that only gives you very limited ability to, to pass new laws. You know, or Under the Senate rules, you ordinarily need 60 votes to pass new legislation. That rule could be changed if every member, Democratic member of the Senate went along, but Senator Manchin of West Virginia said he won't. He does have a great deal of coal in his state. That's right. He has a lot of pull nationally now. You could, with a bare majority, adopt tax legislation. So you could adopt a carbon tax, but uh, I don't know that you're going to get the necessary 50 Democratic votes for that either. So there are limitations on, on what President Biden will be able to do in Congress. And what do you see as the appetite of this Congress when it comes to new laws on climate change? We may see some fairly limited laws on which there's bipartisan consensus. So in December, uh, as part of the COVID recovery bill, Congress actually enacted a, a climate change law that reduced the emissions of hydrofluorocarbons, which are one kind of greenhouse gas. There was bipartisan consensus on that. There are other examples where you could get enough votes from both sides of the aisle to move forward on, on limited areas. But I don't see this Congress enacting uh, the kind of massive, comprehensive, economy-wide climate change law that we are really looking for. You mentioned some very optimistic notes, how President Biden, with the stroke of a pen, can and has made significant differences when it comes to climate and environmental issues. But what would it take in terms of getting down to net zero? Well, in order to get to net zero, we would need clearer laws that allow the you know, the decommissioning of all the coal-fired power plants in the United States. We need to phase out most of the use of natural gas. We need a mandate to move toward all passenger cars to be electric. We need massive infusions of money to build out the wind and solar and the associated transmission and storage at the necessary pace. It's hard to envision doing all of those without congressional action. We've spoken about the role of international law, state law, federal law. Why don't we talk for a bit about the courts? What role can the judiciary play on climate law? In 2007, the Supreme Court issued a very important decision called Massachusetts versus EPA, which found that the Clean Air Act empowers EPA to regulate greenhouse gases. Uh, President Obama used that ruling uh, to promulgate a whole series of uh, climate change regulations on, on reducing greenhouse gases. During the Trump administration, uh, a major role of the courts has been to hold back the administration's rollbacks. The administration was very sloppy in its uh, observance of the Administrative Procedure Act and the National Environmental Policy Act and other laws. And so there were everything that the Trump administration tried to do environmentally, or rather undo, was challenged in court. And the administration lost many of those lawsuits because they were so sloppy in following the law. So, so that was an important role. So in other words, the president had the authority, just failed in delivery. They were able to repeal the laws. They just didn't do so properly. Exactly right. Uh, they they tried to rush through. They didn't explain 
why they were doing it. They didn't have scientific backup. They didn't have the necessary hearings. And so they blew it in many respects. And in the last weeks of the Trump administration, they pushed through a whole lot of additional deregulatory actions, which are being reversed by the Biden administration. Uh, the center I run, the Saban Center for Climate Change Law, the day that Trump was inaugurated, launched a website called the Climate Deregulation Tracker to keep track of the more than 100 measures that Trump was taking to revoke environmental regulations. Then on the day that President Biden was inaugurated, we renamed it the Climate Re-Regulation Tracker and are keeping track of all the things that he's putting back, that Biden is putting back. Professor, maybe you can share the website. Where can our listeners go to see these changes? Go to www.columbiaclimatelaw.com and on it you'll find the Climate Re-Regulation Tracker. President Trump, for all the inefficiency he may have had in rolling back climate law was highly efficient when it came to appointing new judges to the bench. Uh, does that create concern when it comes to climate law? Yeah, the new judges uh, may well pose a problem to the extent that the Biden administration tries to use some of these old laws like the Clean Air Act of 1970. There may be restrictive interpretations of that of those laws. If Congress were to move forward with a new legislation, it would be important for this legislation to be very specific in exactly what it wants the EPA and other government agencies to do in order to get around a couple of doctrines called the Major Questions Doctrine and the Non-Delegation Doctrine, which call for greater specificity in, in legislation. So the six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court is certainly not helpful, but it's not fatal. Professor Michael Gerard of Columbia Law School, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed speaking with you. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.